go. We are continuing our series today in Acts, uh, in our Impact World Sermon Series, and we're moving uh, at this point into, or actually through, chapter 18, having uh, looked at the first part of chapter 18 last time as Paul was in Corinth and uh, establishing ministry in a very decadent and prosperous town. Uh, it's an interesting place because with all of the wretchedness of Corinth, it's uh, one of the only places he didn't get run out of town. So uh, here we pick up with verses 18 through 28. If you have not already, I would invite you to turn there so that you can follow along. You want to be able to see what God's Word says, not just take my word for it. And again, uh, there's nothing more important to the Christ follower than knowing God's Word, knowing what God Himself is revealing to us. So whatever you hear, whether from this pulpit or any other, make sure that you always check it against the Scripture. Anytime you find, whether it's myself, some radio preacher, an author, somebody you find on YouTube, if you find teaching that does not appear to match up with Scripture, you want to dig in. You want to make sure that you're not accepting error. With that, hopefully you've had enough time to, uh, to look it up. And we will begin reading with Acts chapter 18, verse 18. Luke writes, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centuria because of, a, because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived... He was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Father, as we spend this time in your word today, we do so because we want to know you more. Lord, we recognize that an hour or two on a Sunday morning is not the same as digging deep into your word every day. So help us not to fall into the sin of consumer Christianity where we come and we receive and then we walk away unchanged. We walk away unmotivated to know you more. Father, as we, as we open your word and even as we've sung these songs this morning, we recognize that we are prone to wander Father, we confess to you that, that we have sinned and we do sin. We choose other things over you. We prioritize the things of this world over the eternal things. Help us to set our minds on things above. Help us not to get weighed down by the burdens and troubles of this world. Help us not to get caught up in our own comfort, wanting wanting to find joy and, and happiness and peace from you as if you were some vending machine and that was all there is. Lord, we want those things, but we want you more. So Father, as we seek you, as we set aside the sinfulness of the world, the flesh, and the devil, we ask that you would bless us 
Not because we are deserving, but because you are a good father and you want to pour out good things on your children. Today, now, in this moment, Lord, receive our worship. Lord, honor our confession. Forgive us. Cleanse us from unrighteousness. And help us to rightly see and rightly handle the word of truth. Pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as school is starting back up in most places, and we're seeing some students going physically to campuses and some online uh, doing digital learning and, and things like that, one of the things that is clear is that education is important, right? We, we recognize that getting knowledge, going to school is a good thing. That's why all of you parents send your kids to school, that and the truancy officer coming to your door. But, you know, one way or another, we want to make sure that our children have the opportunity to learn. But it's more than children getting the opportunity to learn because if that's all it is, if it's children learning, then what happens when they're no longer children? Schools who are doing the right thing, who are seeking the best thing for kids, the best thing for us all, seek after three specific things. There are three things that we want our kids to have in their education. First, a basic foundation of knowledge from which to grow. You've got to know stuff. You've got to have the basic knowledge, but it doesn't stay there. You build on it. You learn your multiplication tables, but that's not the end of your math learning. You learn some names and dates in history, but that's not the end of your understanding of how government and civics works. It's not, your understanding, uh, it's not the end of your understanding of history and the lessons that it teaches. So we start with a, a basic foundation of knowledge from which to grow. Second, we seek to instill in children a love of learning and a desire to grow. So that it's not just showing up for school, being locked in a building for six hours, and having information shoved down your throat, but actually realizing the joy of knowing more today than you did yesterday. And seeing how it applies in life so that you have a passion, a desire to grow and to know more. Third, we want to instill skills that enable kids to continue learning throughout their lives. They need a basic knowledge. We want to see a love for learning. And they need the ability to continue learning so that they can act on that love for learning and build on that basic foundation. Today, as we look at this uh, passage in Acts 18, we're seeing something very similar. We're seeing the importance of learning. You may have noticed as you uh, opened your program today that the title of the sermon is Lifelong Learners. That's what Christians are. By definition, that's what we are. We are constantly seeking growth. And I hope you will see this as we work through the text. As we look at it, just some basic structure issues. As you look at, at uh, verses 8 to 20, 18 to 28, the first portion up through uh, verse 23 is really just Paul's itinerary, Paul's agenda and, and his travel notes uh, as far as where he's going, what he's doing as he wraps up this second missionary journey and prepares to return home. So we see him uh, at Corinth, and, he, and he's stayed on there. They didn't run him out of town. God promised him that he would not be attacked and harmed, and they tried to attack him, and he wasn't harmed. And now he's stayed on, and he's built relationships there. And then when he leaves, he's heading back to Syria, back to Antioch, the church that sent him out. And he brings with him Priscilla and Aquila, the couple that he was staying with in Corinth who had come to know Christ and had spent all of these days, all of this time, learning from Paul. Daily conversations at the dinner table while they're working, learning about Christ, learning the power of the gospel and what it means to be in Christ. And he takes them with him and they sail and, and 
it's an interesting thing. There, there's a little insert here, just a historical biographical note in verse 18, uh, where Luke tells us that before he sailed, Paul had his hair cut off at Centria because of a vow he had taken. Now, the Enduring Word commentary says that it's almost certainly a Nazarite vow coming from, from uh, the book of Deuteronomy, very much like what you see from Samson, who really bombed big time with that vow, and what you see from John the Baptist. It was normal in special times of consecration among the Hebrews and Israelites, Jews, to, uh, to take this Nazarite vow for a set period of time in which you would not cut your hair, you would not partake of the fruit of the vine, you would not come near a dead body as a special time of consecration to the Lord. So who knows why Paul does this? We're not told. But it's interesting that Paul, who has railed so heavily against ritualism, is not throwing out all ritual. He's throwing out the ism. He's throwing out the getting caught up in the ritual as the end rather than the means of being able to grow. So Paul, as a good Jew, having washed his hands, shaken out his clothes, knocked the dust off his feet several times now with his Jewish brethren in the synagogue, he has not turned away from the truth of Judaism. He's just saying you're, you're not following it through to completion. He is raised a Jew. He still considers himself a Jew, but he primarily identifies with Christ rather than with the nation. So he still participates where it is useful in Jewish traditions and vows as it helps in furthering his growth. Anyway, as we continue, we see that, that uh, they ask him to stay in Ephesus. After, after he gets to Ephesus, he takes Priscilla and Aquila there. He lands here. You may remember a few chapters ago, he wanted to go down to the area where Ephesus is, and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. So he had to go north, and he couldn't go north, and so he had to travel to the west, and he ends up going up into Macedonia and to northern Greece. Now he's gone from there down into Achaia, where Corinth is, in southern Greece, and now he's sailed back over into Asia Minor into, uh, and, and comes to Ephesus. He gets to Ephesus, goes to the synagogue, as always, and reasons with the Jews. Now, in most of the situations where we see that happen, we get an explanation of what goes down in that, in that scenario as he's reasoning from the scriptures with the Jews to convince them that, Christ is, that Jesus is the Christ. This time we don't. Why not? Because it's not the point. As we, as we move through this, he, they want him to stay. Other places they chase him out of the synagogue. Here they want him to stay. Tell us more. They're receiving it, but he doesn't. What he does do is he leaves his newly trained apprentices, if you will, Priscilla and Aquila, there in Ephesus to then pass on to those believers, these new believers, the things that he's been teaching to them. There's a process that takes place. We learn, and then we share what we learn. That's what's happening here in Ephesus. So after Paul leaves Ephesus, um, he, he goes to Caesarea. That's the port city that he lands at uh, when he gets back over to the, to the Levant area. And he, it says he went up to Jerusalem. Now, the more literal texts don't have up to Jerusalem. It just said he went up to meet the church or to greet the church. But because the Nazarite vow would, would end with the offering of this grown hair as a sacrifice to the Lord at the temple... He is going to Jerusalem where the leaders of the church are. So he goes to make this sacrifice and complete the, the time of the vow and to greet the brothers. He then goes, it says he goes up to Jerusalem. We think in terms of north and south with up and down. He's going up from sea level to Jerusalem. And then comes down to Antioch, which is actually north, up into Syria. After he spent some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there, and he traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. He's going back where he was before. You may remember this is where he started his second missionary journey. Now he's going to begin his third, but it starts out not as a missionary journey, but as a pastoral visit. It's important to Paul, we see this pattern over and over, that even as he's going to plant new churches, he's continuing to build disciples. 
That's significant. He's not just looking to gain converts. He's looking to build disciples. So he goes back and he strengthens and he instructs and he says, wait a minute, you're getting a little bit off track here on your doctrine. Let's bring it back over. Here's the truth. And so he offers for them a plumb line, a level, to be able to make sure that things are right. Now, once we get past that first portion, which is almost half of the text, talking about Paul, we recognize this passage isn't really about Paul. It's a little about Paul, but it's really about what happens in Ephesus when Paul's gone. You see in, in verse 24 uh, that Apollos, who is a Jew from Alexandria, which is in Egypt, it's the prominent city in North Africa, we have an African Jew who has come to Ephesus, but he's not just any guy. He's not just any Jew or any African. He is a particularly learned guy. They, in Alexandria, this is a, a very highly educated town. It's where Athens is a philosophical university town. Alexandria is a, uh, an African university town, and they have the, the great library, one of the amazing uh, amazing things in the ancient world is the Library of Alexandria, most all of which is lost to us today. But it's legendary. It's a seat of knowledge. And not only is he educated and learned, but he is well-versed in the Scriptures. When Luke speaks of the Scriptures here, he's talking about what we know as the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. He knows the Word well. And he's able to teach it. Not only does he know the word well, but it says that he, he teaches with a fervor. He speaks with a fervor, a spiritual passion. He has a fervor in the spirit. So when he delivers these speeches, when he goes to the synagogues or wherever he's preaching, this guy is an orator. Paul comes as, as essentially a lawyer. He, that's a, a lot of what the Pharisees did. Is they, they broke down the law and they thought through the the logic of it, and they made arguments, and Paul's really good at that. Apollos, though, he's the speaker. He's the guy that would be bringing in the big conferences. You're going to pay a high ticket price to come hear him. But not only is he an educated Jew who knows the, the, the scriptures well and knows the wisdom that he would have gained growing up in Alexandria, he also is teaching about Christ. He's been instructed in the way of the Lord. This is the, the basic reality of the gospel. But he doesn't have the whole gospel. He's got part of the gospel. So he's teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. But it appears that he doesn't really quite get what that means yet. He's only gotten as far as what we read early in the gospels with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, as you might remember, came to make straight the way of the Lord, to prepare the people for the Messiah. And he calls them to repentance, and he baptizes them for repentance, that they would turn from their way to God's way, and that's where Apollos is. He sees that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's still at the, at the precipice there of the Old Testament, New Testament line, where we find John the Baptist. Until Priscilla and Aquila relatively new believers that have sat daily with Paul and been instructed, instructed in the deep things of God. Not mysterious knowledge, but the mystery of the gospel revealed in Christ. They hear him preaching, and they say, hey, would you like to come to our house? Come have some dinner. Ha have some, some Ephesian pizza with us. We're going to sit down and and in, 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 in Ephesus, they probably had anchovies on it, so it's not really good for me. You know, but, you know, anyway, they're going to have them come over for dinner. We're going to sit down and sort through this. And when he comes to dinner, they explain to him more fully the gospel, the reality of Christ. They fill in the gaps in his gospel. Now, understand, Apollos, very gifted. He's becoming prominent from his abilities, his skills, his charming, compelling personality as a speaker. In fact, we read later that the Corinthians, he'll, he'll end up going there, the Corinthians actually are starting to divide over whether we follow Paul or we follow Apollos, and Paul addresses that in his letter. 
It's like, man, we're on the same team. So this compelling speaker with this great education who almost certainly knows more about so many things than Aquila and Priscilla is instructed by them in the fullness of the gospel. There's some real powerful realities that take place here. And I've spent way too much time on that, so I'm just going to end up throwing away my schedule here. We're going we're gonna to press on. You, you know I want to break this down real thoroughly. We're going to have to move quickly, so I'm going to have to trust you to do some digging on your own. You should be in your word every day anyway. You should be digging into the scriptures, spending time just you and God, talking, praying, reading. Because if you don't, then your roots are only going to be shallow and the storms of life are going to uproot you and rock you regularly. If you're struggling with your faith, ask yourself, how seriously am I taking developing my growth and my maturity? Probably a correlation for you. As we move into this, um, there are some related passages I want us to see. So I'm just, I'm just going to read these. I'm not going to expound them really. I'm just going to read them. Uh, Romans 12 1 and 2. I'm not going to have you turn there. I just want to point out, Paul says in Romans 12, that in light of all that God has done, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. He says, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, changed from within, by the renewing of your mind. Keep that in mind as we read these passages. Ephesians chapter 4, please turn with me there. If you're still in Acts, you're going to turn to the right. All of these will be to the right of, of Acts, and we'll just kind of go in order of books, so you'll just keep moving to the right. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4. The first seven verses, and then we'll jump down to verse 11. Ephesians 4. This is Paul writing, this is much later, writing back to the church at Ephesus. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Jump down to verse 11. <clears throat> so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Turn the page, if you would, to Philippians chapter 1. It's only going to be one or two pages for you. Philippians chapter 1. Paul, again, writing to the church at Philippi, the first church that he plants as he starts his first missionary journey. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. 
so that you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Turn the page, again, it's one or two pages, to Colossians chapter 1, writing a similar message to the church at Colossae. Paul says, starting with verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. Please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Again, turn the page to chapter 3 of the same book. Chapter 3, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Last reference. We'll go past a few books here, so it's more than just a a page or two, to 2 Peter go past Hebrews and James and you'll find Peter's letters. If you get to John's letters or Jude or Revelation, you won't find Jude. It's just little. You get to Revelation, you went too far if you went to those. Second Peter, chapter 3, last chapter of this second letter that he has. We're going to look at the last two verses of the last chapter of Peter's last letter. He's already warned them of judgment to come. He's spoken of Paul's letters as scripture, equivalent to the Old Testament law of Moses, given by God. He says in verse 17, Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard, so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position." But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. That would be a really great verse to memorize, so we've chosen it to be our memory verse for today. So, in in light of those passages that we just read, much of which was written by Paul, much of which was written by Paul to the churches that we're seeing. It's important for us to be able to draw from the passage that we have what Luke wants us to see, what is happening in Paul's life and Apollos' life and Priscilla and Aquila's life. What's happening in the churches is it that we need just another uh, historical sketch of what's going on? Well, yes, that's part of it because that is part of the purpose of this book, but just as Luke wrote his gospel to Theophilus so that he could be sure, that he could be certain of the things he's been taught, for the same reason he's writing Acts to his friend Theophilus, and by extension to all of us, so that we can be sure and we can be certain of what we have been taught, the good news about Jesus that we have received. And as he lays this out in Luke, in the gospel, 
He's laying out what Jesus began to do and to teach. Now when he gets to the book of Acts, he's laying out what happens after Jesus returns to the Father and sends the Holy Spirit in his place to be with each of us. And so as the church grows and expands, what we are receiving from the apostles is the foundation of our knowledge. So we need to recognize what they are doing and why they are doing it. How does it apply to us? The climax of the passage we're reading in Acts 18 is really verse 26. Everything hinges on that verse. It's kind of the pivot point. Let's go ahead and walk through this and we'll see some, some points. You can fill in blanks in your program. First off, the first uh, section, verses 18 to 23, show us that gospel ministry is more than evangelism. Gospel ministry is more than evangelism. Bear in mind, it's never less than that. It starts with sharing the good news. You can't teach someone to live in Christ if they don't know Christ, if they're not in Him. And how can they believe if they haven't heard? Somebody has to share this. So it's never less than evangelism. But Paul's primary concern is not to make new converts, but to build disciples. In Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, you can just jot it down, look it up later. Most of you probably are familiar with it when you hear it, because we've talked about it lots of times. In Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, Jesus gives us the Great Commission. And he starts by saying, therefore, because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go and make disciples. Now, he doesn't say go and make converts. Let's go build the church and get our numbers up so we can have a, a lot of influence and be a, a powerful political force in the world. He says, make disciples. How do you make disciples? You do it by identifying them with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Collecting them together so that everything about their life is now identified with Jesus. That's what baptism is for. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So as we bring people and they become converts, what that means is, I died to me, I died to this world, to, I died to my sin as I identify with Christ on the cross, and I'm raised up with Him to a new life, able to live for God, to please Him for the first time ever. An unbeliever can't please God. No matter how good you might do, you can settle all justice issues in the world, but if you do it apart from God, apart from Christ, it's as if it's sin. It's filthy rags. Because earthly justice isn't the end game. It's a reflection of the end game. It's a reflection of the kingdom of God, His rule. It's all about Him. So in this baptism, we teach them then, baptizing them in the name, teaching them to obey all the commands that I've given you. So Jesus doesn't call them to just evangelize, but to minister. And we see in verses 18 to 23, that's Paul's passion. That's what he's doing. He has trained Priscilla and Aquila, and he brings them to Ephesus. Why did he bring them along? He had them leave their home in Corinth. He had them leave their trade in Corinth. Now, in all likelihood, they're able to still do that here so they can make money because you got to eat, right? So they come, then they make their tents in Ephesus instead of in Corinth. But they've uprooted themselves for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because Paul can't be everywhere. So he keeps training others to train others. Timothy, he's brought along with him, and he will at some point leave Timothy here at Ephesus to be the pastor of this church. And when we read his letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Timothy is pastoring at Ephesus. Paul's concern is not just with getting new people into the church, certainly not with how many people you get on your attendance count, but how many people have passed from death to life and understand the fullness of the gospel. So he leaves them to train in Ephesus as he goes on his way. And when he gets back there, he gets to, to Jerusalem and says hi, and then he goes home to Antioch, and he spends some time in Antioch visiting all the, the friends that are there, the brothers and sisters who have sent him out. 
But Luke writes this in such a way, we're not told how long he stays, but Luke writes it in such a way as to make sure that we get a picture of immediate movement. He comes to Antioch, hey, how you doing? Let's have a cup of coffee, and off we go. And he's on his way to go back to build up the churches who are already there, to strengthen and encourage them. And then, having strengthened and encouraged them, to go and plant more churches. It's always important to know that gospel ministry is more than evangelism. But bear in mind, it's never less. Secondly, if we look at verses uh, 22 and 23, we see that loving Jesus means loving his church. Loving Jesus means loving his church. We just read in Ephesians 4 uh, that there's one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We all have this one spirit in us, the Holy Spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians 12, we read Paul, same guy, talking about us believers as a body. One organism with many members, many parts, working together for the good of the whole. Under the head, who is Christ? It's important for us to recognize that loving Jesus means loving his church. In, in 1 Corinthians 12, he's addressing spiritual gifts. In Corinth, they're having problems with jealousies and dissension and fighting. So he follows up chapter 12, talking about us being a body, using our spiritual gifts, with 1 Corinthians 13. You've probably heard that at weddings. It's not about weddings. It's about believers. And in a nutshell, 1 Corinthians 13 says, if you love Jesus, then you've got to love his people. You've got to love his body. The way Christ loves. Selflessly, putting somebody else's needs ahead of your own. Being willing to lay your life down. There's a sacrifice to it. There's a, a volition to it. It's not without affection, but it's not limited to affection. It's I love you when you are unlovable as an act of the will. And because I choose to love you, I develop the affection for you. Loving Jesus means loving his church. In fact, in Ephesians 5, we get the, the picture when Paul actually uses marriage, uses this as a picture of Christ in the church. And the church is referred to as his bride. Several places throughout scripture. In fact, we see it come up in Revelation 19. We are the bride of Christ. How can you love Jesus and not love his bride? Let me just submit to you a thought. You can wrestle with it for yourself. As I look at the scripture, as I look at the book of Acts in particular, as I read all of Paul's things, even reading the Old Testament and how God deals with his people in the Old Covenant, I'm left to conclude that you cannot love Jesus without loving the church. If you don't love the body of Christ, these annoying, irritating people that you do life with together, if you don't love them like your own flesh and blood, then I suggest that perhaps you don't really know who Christ is. You might need to reassess some things. Loving Jesus means loving his church. Third, we see that life in Christ is a purpose-filled life. Life in Christ is a purpose-filled life. In other words, there's no room in the Christian life for boredom. No place for it. You can't be filled with purpose and passion and be bored. Notice what happens when Paul gets back to Antioch. He, he goes and he... He gets home, ah, oh, finally, I'm back, I'm done. I can just kick back in the recliner, turn on ESPN, yeah, maybe not turn on ESPN, but you know, as he's, as he's there, he's not just saying, that's it, I'm done. There's too much left to do. People are dying without Christ. People who know Christ need to be taught, need to be raised up so they can make disciples. And he lives purpose 
So he gets there, and he spends time. He recharges. That's necessary for all of us. He has purposeful rest. I'm sure he's reporting everything that's happened to the believers who sent him. And then he gets back on the road. Why? Because there's work to do. Paul is on board for one minute. He's in prison later, and he's not bored in prison. He's chained up. What does he do? Oh, he just writes the Bible. You know, no big deal. Reminds me a little, those of you who are with us on Wednesday nights, of John Bunyan, John Bunyan in prison for 12 years for preaching the gospel unauthorized by the government. And what does he do while he's in prison? He just writes the greatest, uh, the greatest book outside of the Bible that's been written in Western civilization. No big deal. Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah, fine. Just changed the life of thousands and thousands of people. So then he gets done with that and he writes another one. And then he writes another one. Purpose. Living with purpose and passion because you recognize a reality that is bigger than your moment kills any concept of boredom. Life in Christ is a purpose-filled life. Philippians 1.21, Paul said, For me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. I'm torn. Because for myself, man, I'd rather go home. I want to be with Jesus face to face. Many of us think, oh man, what a morbid thought. He's got a death wish. No, he's got a life wish. This is the death. It only gets better when we pass through that door. Why can Paul say that? Because for him, it's not some religious concept. It's not something I muster up inside that I'm, oh, I'm going to find some, some strength and hope and confidence by trusting in this. Yeah, it's hard. I don't want to leave this world. But No, for him, this is reality. Everything here is pointing there. I can't wait to get there. But why do I stay here? Why does God keep me here? And why do I rejoice in it? Because there's work to do. If I get to stay here, I get to minister. I get to share with you. We get to do life together, and we get to point others to Christ. We'll get home in time. Purpose. Life in Christ is a purpose-filled life. Next notice, the gospel is more than knowledge. Preaching it takes more than skill. The gospel is more than knowledge, and preaching it takes more than skill. Now, I'm not talking just about pastors, preachers, people who stand up in front and proclaim, but proclaiming the word of truth every day. Yes, for sure, pastors, evangelists, preachers, but each one of us, each one of us has a pulpit. It's the life that God has given you and the circle of influence that you have. And it takes more than just knowledge... It takes more than just skill. It takes a heart surrendered to Christ. Notice uh, with Apollos. We're looking at uh, verses 24 to 26 of Acts 18. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He's got all the knowledge. He had even been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor, great spiritual passion, and taught about Jesus accurately. The things that he said about Christ were right. They were just incomplete. He didn't quite know to go farther. He taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He understood the Old Testament scriptures. He understood how they showed and taught that Jesus was the Messiah. He understood that we needed to repent and turn to God. What he didn't seem to understand yet was that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of it. Our hope is not merely in repentance, but our hope is in Christ himself. So Priscilla and Aquila take him aside and they teach him more adequately, more fully, more completely. Now, what are they going to teach him besides repentance? That sounds pretty good. They, he already knows Jesus is the Messiah. That sounds pretty good. They're going to teach him that I need to die. I need to die to myself in Christ. I need to reckon myself as nailed to the cross with him. What we saw in Romans 12.1. 
view of God's mercy. What else could you do? If he died for me, I need to identify with him and live for him. Now, we're not told this, but I assume at this point, I think it's a reasonable assumption. It's not without a logical foundation. I believe at this point, Apollos gets baptized, identified with Christ. Prior to this, he was identified with God in repentance in the baptism of John. But now, having received it more fully, more adequately, is there any doubt? As we see elsewhere in Acts, that the first thing he wants to do is say, if that's how we show that we belong to Christ, then baptize me too. Flood me, engulf me. I want to be covered head to toe in the message and the, the symbol of Jesus Christ. Because right now today, I choose to receive him, to die with him, and to accept his life by the Holy Spirit in me. Now, the reason I think this is new for Apollos is we have an incomplete gospel here. That's clear. But Paul's going to come back and deal with those that Apollos had taught in Ephesus. And they don't have the full gospel yet. So he's going to fill in the gaps as Priscilla and Aquila do for Apollos. The gospel is more than knowledge. Preaching it takes more than skill. In fact, when Paul writes to Timothy and Titus about appointing elders and deacons, the leaders of the church, for elders, one requirement on a big list is that they're able to teach. Knowledge is important. The rest is about the person they are, their character. Are they surrendered to Christ in their daily living? Deacons, who are a servant ministry, aren't required to be able to teach, but all of the character qualities of living for Christ, letting his life live through you, are still there for deacons. Next, notice this. Sound doctrine must be protected and preserved. Sound doctrine must be protected and preserved. You can, on your own time, uh, read the book of Jude. Jude, there's, you know, there's just one chapter. It's real simple, real, real short. But in verse 3, Jude, the half-brother of Christ, writes to the church. He says, I wanted to, to write to you about this other stuff. man. I really wanted to, to go with you. But I feel compelled that I have to come back to this defending sound doctrine. I can't let you stray. There's error, and we've got to fight it. And he goes on to describe some of the error that they're needing to fight against. But the point in verse 3 is that whatever else I had on my agenda has to wait until we defend the faith. Until we protect and preserve the apostles' teaching, the sound doctrine. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, he's called by Paul to guard the good deposit. That that gospel message, the sound doctrine that had been entrusted to Timothy as a pastor in Ephesus, as a preacher of the gospel, he was called to guard it. Do whatever it takes to make sure that you don't let this get perverted. I fear for the church in America today. Because we're so quick to water down the gospel. To dilute the teachings of the scriptures so that it's more comfortable so that it's more attractive so that it's less old fashioned oh well we need to change with the times the bible is really a living document God is still speaking and, and you know what it said then isn't really the same as what we're living today this is being taught from pulpits that call themselves Christians Sound doctrine must be protected and preserved. We saw in 2 Peter 3.17 that, that Peter called the church to be on guard so that they wouldn't be carried away by error, by the lawless. 
sound doctrine must be protected and preserved. Notice also, both message and manner matter. Both message and manner matter. A good word must be well spoken. It needs to be said in the right way at the right time. You can be right all day long, but if you're a jerk, I'm not going to listen to you. It's just reality. In Proverbs 25:11, we read that a word aptly spoken or fitly given is like apples of gold and settings of silver. In other words, the right word in the right way at the right time is a beautiful thing. Priscilla and Aquila don't confront Apollos in front of everybody. They don't grab him after the service and say, Dude, what's wrong with you? You totally missed it. They say, Hey, brother, man, we just really appreciate you coming and preaching. Come on over. Why don't you come to our house? Be our guest. Be our guest. Put our service to the test. I could not resist. I'm sorry. And as they hosted him, as they demonstrated grace and love, they were able to sit down with him and say, you know, I really appreciated your point here as you were reasoning with the people and as you were declaring the reality of Christ. But do you know there's more? I'm so happy that you were accurate in your teaching, and yet there's more. It's not just about new behavior. It's about a new life. It's not just about turning from your sin. It's recognizing that your sin still deserves death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the beauty of a word aptly spoken. It would have been really easy for Apollos to hear this. Who the heck are you? So you're, you're tent makers. I'm educated. I got degrees. I, you know, I got, I got a, a new degree from, from the local college. I got it up on my wall. I just, I'm smart. How dare you? But he doesn't do that. And it, the reason he doesn't do that is twofold. One, Apollos' humility. Because he wants to know Jesus more. And second, I think equal to it, feeding into it, is that Priscilla and Aquila speak to him not with judgment, but with love. Love always comes to the truth. Love without truth is a lie. Conversely, truth without love is abuse. You can be right all day, but nobody wants to get smacked in the face with a two-by-four. It's not good. Sound doctrine must be protected and preserved, but both message and manner matter. Notice this. Learning requires humility. Teaching requires confidence. Learning requires humility. Teaching requires confidence. There are, there are two things that are happening here. Apollos is humble enough to learn. Priscilla and Aquila are confident enough to teach. Confident enough to take someone who's clearly more educated than they are and say, you know, I, I respect your knowledge, but sound doctrine matters. There are two competing passages, or what appear to be competing passages, in my mind. You can jot them down and check them out. James 3.1 where James says, James, brother of Christ, pastor of Jerusalem, leader of the church, when he says in his letter, not many of you should presume to be teachers because teachers are held to a higher standard. It's a warning about taking it lightly. There's a responsibility. And that's balanced by 1 Timothy 3.1. 1 Timothy 3.1, where Paul is writing to Timothy about the requirements for elders and deacons. And he says, if anyone desires to be an elder, an overseer, he desires a noble task. There's a constant encouragement both ways throughout the scriptures. The entire book of Proverbs deals with being a humble learner and also teaching. 
where teaching is appropriate. The two go hand in hand. So you should desire to grow into maturity and to be a leader, to use what God has given you to teach others, but you should never take it lightly because the reality of the, of the matter is, if I presume to teach someone else, I darn well better be right. It requires a confidence, not in myself. There's zero chance, zero chance, that Priscilla and Aquila were more confident in their strength, knowledge, ability, intelligence, you know, quick-wittedness than they would be in Apollos's. He's got the skills. I can't hang in a debate with him. What they were confident in was the soundness of the teaching they had received. They knew what they knew. They knew from whom they had learned it. They knew that it was the word of God. Therefore, nobody was going to sway them. Their confidence was not in themselves. It was in what they knew. How do we get that confidence? Diligence. Repetition. We must be actively pursuing greater knowledge. And not only greater knowledge and data, but greater relational, practical knowledge. Wisdom. I got to know the stuff, and I got to know what to do with what I know. That builds confidence. Learning requires humility, teaching requires confidence. We're, we're coming to the end here. We got two more points that we want to see. Notice this, we learn that when we, we, I'm sorry, let me try this again. We learn that we may teach, gain that we may give, and rise that we may serve. I'm going to try and say that again without stumbling over myself. We learn that we may teach, gain that we may give, and rise that we may serve. Verse 27 kind of brings this together for us. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. This wasn't just about Apollos. He learned from Priscilla and Aquila, though he was prominent and they were not. He learned from them so that then he could teach it to others. Priscilla and Aquila, not clergy, not professional preachers, tent makers learned from Paul that they could then teach others. That's why he has them in Ephesus in the first place. It's important for us to recognize that all of the gifts that God gives us are for use for his kingdom. 1 Peter 4.10 Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. This is what we're called to. To use what we have gained to give to others. In Matthew 20, in fact in all of the, the Gospels, we see this picture of the first being last. If you want to follow me, you've got to make yourself a slave to everyone. You need to become last. You need to serve. And Jesus points out, look, even the Son of Man, even Christ himself, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to make his life a ransom for many. Apollos was raised up to prominence by his gifts that God had given him. But those gifts were given him so that he could serve. We learn that we may teach, gain that we may give, and rise that we may serve. Lastly, notice this. Offering our gifts back to the Lord pleases him and strengthens his people. Offering our gifts back to the Lord pleases him and strengthens his people. Verses 27 and 28, we see that Apollos uh, ends up going to Achaia. He'll spend time in Corinth there. The brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him. They supported him in it. They wrote to the disciples there to receive him, to welcome him. When he gets there to Achaia, perhaps even directly to Corinth, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. The gifts that, that God had given to, to Apollos put him out front. 
It was the nature of the gifts, speaking, teaching gifts, to be able to make the case, to present it in a compelling way. And he did that. And as he did it, as he used his gifts, gave them back to God in service to him, in serving others, God was pleased and the people were strengthened. Apollos did in Corinth what apparently the others could not have done, at least not yet. Being relatively new believers, as Paul had brought this, and not being necessarily at this point gifted to be able to do, do public debate with the Jewish leaders who had been teaching and learning the same things over and over again for a long time. Apollos comes in and he strengthens them. How does he do that? Have you ever been in a room full of people that you were just sure knew more than you did? Or you just felt inadequate to the task? I can't, I, something doesn't seem right here, but if I speak up, I'm going to look like a fool. Have you ever felt that way to the point that you started to maybe even doubt your own faith? Maybe it was a college professor telling you how foolish your faith was. Oh, you Christians, you don't even believe in science. You can't be a scientist because you believe in the Bible. Maybe it's, it, it's a, a, an atheistic or agnostic friend who just seems to have all the answers and catch you off guard. It's discouraging. Apollos comes in, being gifted for the moment, and he shuts it down. With his compelling manner, he is able to debate the, the Jewish leaders publicly and refute their arguments. And all of a sudden, the believers there are like, yeah, he's right. Yeah, Apollos, you go get them. And going from being all nervous and intimidated, all of a sudden, they are now bold. They are strong. I just don't want to step on Because using his gifts in service of the Lord strengthened and encouraged those around him. Offering our gifts back to the Lord pleases him and strengthens his people. All right, let's land this plane. Life in Christ involves working together to know and to reflect Him better every day. This is what we want to walk away from this passage with. We see it carried out by Paul. We see it carried out by Priscilla and Aquila. We see it carried out by Apollos. We see the churches being strengthened. Life in Christ involves working together to know and to reflect Him better every day. I think you've got one more blank there for this closing point. Those who know must teach. Those who teach must learn. Those who learn must change. And those who change must act. I'll read it again. Those who know must teach. Those who teach must learn. Those who learn must change. And those who change must act. By God's design, our spiritual growth and maturity is an ongoing team effort. It involves working together to know and to reflect Christ better every day. Right now, each one of us has something the Lord is calling us to do in response to this. Now, I don't know where you're at. God does. But if you've realized today that you've never actually received Christ, maybe you, you knew and believed the facts like Apollos did, but... But you haven't put your whole self, all your hope, your trust, your life in his hands. You haven't recognized that our hope isn't in changed behavior, but a changed identity passing from death to life. If you are just realizing that today, that's your next step. It all starts with entering into that relationship. And if you'd like to know more about that, see me afterwards. Text me, my cell phone is on the program message me, whatever it takes. I don't want you to walk away from here thinking, I need Jesus and I don't know what to do about it. It's as simple as saying, Lord, I'm yours, save me. And then surrendering myself in that moment and choosing Him over everything else. Simple, not easy. That's where we start, is in entering into that relationship. Then we work together to grow deeper in the grace and knowledge of the one who saved us and to whom our lives belong. Knowing him and growing in him changes what we desire. It changes how we think. 
And if we are changed and changing, then it needs to show up in a surrendered lifestyle. I can't claim to be in Christ if I'm still living my life the way I want to live it. Once I know, once I see it, and I've learned the truth of who He is, it changes me. And if it's truly changing me, it will show up in my actions and how I live my life. Those who know must teach, those who teach must learn, those who learn must change, and those who change must act. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's so much for us to talk about in these matters. It requires more than just a, a moment in time. It requires a life that's focused on you. Father, we, we recognize that, that so often we do church the same way we do anything else, through our own efforts, by what seems right. We seek to minister to people through, through secular marketing methods rather than through the power of your Spirit. Lord, help us not to, to know in our heads that Jesus is who he says he is but fail to surrender our hearts to make him our own Lord. Father, we ask that you would rule in us, that Christ would rule in us, that your spirit would show your power through our daily living as we seek together as one body to work together to know and to reflect the one who gave his life for us a little better every day. Help us to grow in grace and knowledge as we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd invite you all to stand for our closing hymn. As we sing this hymn, parts are, are exceedingly familiar, and I want you to not let yourself fall into the trap of familiarity.